Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. Let's by a show of hands real quick. How many people think 1991 was like a really long time ago? Yeah, when Greg said that, when Greg threw out there that date, I was just like, it doesn't seem that far from me. But then I thought about people like Tyler Russell, and I was like, probably makes me feel ancient. You're getting old, Greg. It's a good thing. (laughs) All right, Ecclesiastes, that had nothing to do with the message. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. I'm going to go ahead and read it. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivating fields or cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you speak to us. And we ask that you would just soften our hearts right now. Or that this word that was just read would be just sown into our hearts. And it would bear the appropriate fruit in our lives. Lord, that you would give us those ears to hear. Lord, and that we would be quick to not just hear, but to do and to apply the truth that we find you speaking to us this morning through your word. So Lord, accomplish your good purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I came across an an illustration in studying this text. Uh, There's a famous painting from the 1500s called 
The Money Lender and His Wife by Quentin Massey's. Anybody ever heard of it before? Okay, neither have I until now. But I think we have it, Nate, if you want to throw it up there. You probably can't see it very well because it's real bright in here. But this is a famous picture of a husband and his wife, a man and a woman sitting next to each other at a table. And the husband has before him coins. He has jewelry and he's got a scale and he's weighing these things. He's looking intently at his wealth. Sitting next to him is his wife, and she's got a book in front of her, and as I was studying this painting, trying to find out more about it, she's, she's reading a book, it, it, it's most likely a spiritual book, it could be her Bible, but if you notice, she's flipping the pages, but not really paying attention to what is in front of her. Instead, what's she looking at? She's looking at the wealth. She's looking at what her husband has in his hands. She finds herself being distracted, being distracted by money, being distracted from her devotion to God. And there's more going on in this painting, and I'm not going to share more about it. If you can see down in the bottom, there's this little mirror there. And some would say, as you look in it, and you have to Google it to see it better, I guess, would be there's the guy, and he's, he's looking up at this window frame. But what does that window frame look like? A cross. And so there's some imagery in that all. There's a ton of stuff going on in here, but, but he's portraying just, just the temptation that we all face in this life. We all have stuff. We all have money. You might not have as much money as the next guy, but, but you have it. And the reality is all of this stuff that we have, all of this money is a huge potential to distract us from what God has actually called us to do. Now, money in and of itself is not evil. It's a good thing that God has given to us for our good. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that in this text. The problem with money and possessions comes when we love it too much. When we want it more than anything else in life, when, when it actually takes the place in our lives that is reserved only for God. In Matthew 6, verse 24, he wrote the following. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, You cannot serve God and money. Did you hear what he said right there? You cannot serve God and money. You, you can't have those two things in your life and think that you're going to be able to give equal attention to both of them. You can't serve God and money. You can't have two masters because if you try to have two masters, you're going to find yourself loving the one and hating the other because they come into conflict with one another at some point in your life. The wife in that painting was trying to serve God and at the same time found herself being distracted by money. And so you, you, just, you see a picture of it. She's trying to do one thing and at the same time the other thing. But what happens when she's trying to do both? She turns her attention from the one to the other. And that's what Jesus was getting at here. And so money in itself is, is not evil. It's the love of money. In 1 Timothy 6.10 Paul wrote to Timothy the following, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's, 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, money itself is not the root of all kinds of evils. It's the love of money. It's the craving of money. It's the worship of money that Paul's getting at here. And he's saying it's, it's that. It's the love of money that's at the root of all kinds of evils. As Solomon looked out at life under the sun, remember that's, that's life lived apart from God. That's a life lived for self. That's a life lived not to please God or recognize God as God or fear God. It's just life that goes on that doesn't recognize God. It's, it's a life of an unbelieving world. And so as he looked out at life under the sun, he saw this truth being lived out. He saw people loving money. He saw people loving their wealth. He saw people loving their possessions. And as a result, he saw all sorts of evils that he wants to share with us today. And these things were destroying people's lives. If you were to be honest with yourself right now, which I hope you would be, how would you evaluate your current relationship with the money that you have? How would you evaluate your current relationship? And by that, I just mean, where's your heart at when you think about your money, the stuff that's in your bank account, that's available to you? Or when you think about the possessions or the wealth that you have, how would you evaluate that? Do you love money and all that it can buy? Do you have a love-hate relationship with it as you recognize that when you have enough in your life, it's great? When you have margin, that's the word that's kind of come up over and over again. I would say in the conversations I have with people in the last six months, there's folks that, that just, they love the margin. But they love when there's more left at the end of the pay period that, that you have freedom to do some other things with it. And so when, when you have margin, do you love that? And then, and then what about those moments when you recognize there's not quite enough? coming in, and then you find that, that bank account, the savings account, the emergency fund, or whatever it is you want to call it, seems to be shrinking every month. Where, where's your heart at in those moments? What, what's it like for you? Does, it, does your joy level kind of increase and decrease based upon your bank account or how your possessions or wealth are doing? Where does money fit into the life that you're currently living? Does it affect you in any way, negatively, when it's there or when it's not there? If you're married, now this is one kind of comes up in premarital counseling all the time, and then if you're going through premarital or if you've just gone through premarital and you've only been married for a year, it, it just comes up pretty much all the time. So here's the question. If you're married, think about how many conflicts you get into that are directly related to money. Does that happen often? And the question to ask is, why? Why do we fight about money so much? What, what does that reveal about our hearts? Could it be that we might love it too much? And by that, I mean we're not actually loving God the right way in the sense that he's called us to, but instead of loving him, we love the security that money gives us. Instead of trusting God for that security, we, we trust in our bank accounts. We trust in the paycheck that comes our way. And so, again, just evaluate. Where are your hearts at? And be really honest here, because there are some pretty strong words said throughout Scripture. You can't love God and money. 
The love of money is at the root of all kinds of evils. And so the question is, do you love money? Do you worship it? Where, where's your heart at in relation to all of the wealth that God has given to you? What we're going to learn in this text this morning is this. Our ability to enjoy money and possessions is not found in money or possessions. Rather, this joy is found in God alone. Therefore, we must depend on God for our enjoyment of these things. I know it's kind of a a long sentence, but that's what we're going to find here in the text. Our joy is not ultimately going to be found in money or possessions. It's not. Our joy is going to be found in God, who's the giver of these things. So we're going to learn how to enjoy these things, but we're going to take a little bit to get there. We've got to work our way through two points to get to that third point. And so in our first point, here's what we learn. Do not be surprised by corruption. And so Solomon's kind of, again, he's, he's looking out at life, and he takes us kind of big picture first as he's thinking about money, possessions, and in this first point, he's, he's looking at power as well. So point one, do not be surprised by corruption. So As Solomon shows us the vanity of the love of money, he starts out by talking about the injustices people suffer at the hands of evil rulers and governments. Verse 8, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. And so basically what he sees happening here is oppression and injustice taking place at every level of society. So he's looking out and he's just saying, okay, well, I'm looking at this this country, I'm looking at this province, and I'm watching these people run this thing, and there's just a lot of corruption. There's a lot of unrighteousness. There's a lot of injustice taking place. There are these rich people who held a place of power, and what they seem to be doing is they seem to be taking advantage of the people that they're supposed to be serving. They're taking advantage of people who don't have the same riches and don't have the same power, and they're abusing their power to get what they want, causing people to suffer. And so he just sees injustice. He's unrighteous ruling by unrighteous rulers at pretty much every level. Interesting, hey? Weird how he would see something like that. Could you imagine a government being run like that? Where there just might be somebody who's not in it to actually serve people that have elected them? Can you imagine somebody that would write up a policy that wouldn't serve anybody that it was actually called that they were actually called to serve and so the interesting thing here is when solomon's sharing this stuff the big thing he wants us to learn about this is he wants us to not be shocked by this to not be amazed that this is actually taking place that's what he says This is what I saw. I saw corruption. I saw injustice. And then he just says, don't be amazed at this. Don't be shocked by the fact that there are ungodly people ruling in ungodly ways. 
Don't be shocked when people who don't recognize God as God, who don't fear Him to be God, neglect God's Word and instead do what they think is best. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be shocked when governing bodies write policies that are ungodly. Don't be shocked when ungodly people don't hold to godly truths about the value of human life and instead write up policies and put into legislation that it's okay to kill human life. Don't be shocked by that. I mean, it's still shocking a bit, isn't it? Because we don't understand how it how something like that could happen. But, but that's kind of what Solomon's opening our eyes to. That's what it's like to live life under the sun. That's what it's like to live life in countries and places where the leaders don't recognize God and his word. They're not really seeking to honor and obey him because they don't fear him. Therefore, you're going to get crazy policies. You're going to find people who lead in corrupt ways, who seek to do what they think is best, and what it ends up doing is hurting people that they're called to serve. That's, that, that's just what life is like under the sun. Don't be shocked by any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't want us to be, I can't believe they would do something like that. Don't, don't be so naive to believe that all of a sudden ungodly people are going to start recognizing God and start doing godly things because they can't apart from God acting and actually saving them. So I would say, be shocked when an ungodly person does a righteous thing. I attribute that to God's common grace, to God being at work in this world, working out his goodwill all according to his perfect wisdom. So don't be shocked by this. That's what life is like under the sun apart from God. Solomon does tell us in verse 9 that there is gain, though, in a land or a nation when a king or a ruler allows for his people to actually work. If all there ever is is oppression of the poor and injustice, a nation doesn't really prosper. Solomon's just, again, he's just making observations. He's just looking at, the, at life under the sun, and he says, there is some gain. There's some gain when... when when people let their people actually work, when there's actually cultivated fields and people get to go to work and, and they have some freedom to work as unto the Lord in many ways. And so if we're not called to be shocked, then what are we called to do? Well, as we look outside of this text, I think there's a couple things. One, one we're, we're called to pray for our leaders. The men and women we put in place, the men and women whom we give power to govern and serve us. First Timothy chapter two says this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so life under the sun, when we elect ungodly people to rule, they're going to rule in ungodly ways, but God has called us to pray for them. He's called us to participate. There's other things we're called to do as well, but, but I think one of the main things we need to think about doing instead of grumbling and complaining 
or gossiping and slandering, yes, even public officials, we're, we're called to pray. Because we recognize that there's actually a higher ruler than all of them. And it's our God. It's our Heavenly Father who's created all things, who's at work in all things, and He invites us into praying for these men and women. Asking God to change their hearts. Asking God to work in and through them, through His amazing grace, to accomplish His good purposes. We're also called to ultimately not put our hope in these leaders. Now, this is really important for us to hear. I think especially during this day and age. We don't, we don't look to a new president or an old president or to any official to ultimately be our savior. Our hope is not ultimately put in them. As if we put the right guy in the big seat, everything changes. Our hope is meant to be in Christ. Isaiah verse, chapter 9, verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's good news. See, Life lived under the sun with ungodly rulers, and I would even throw in there godly rulers who still have sin in their hearts, are going to let you down. They're they're just going to fail. But see, our hope is not ultimately meant to be in them. We trust in a God who sent his son Jesus, who's actually governing, who's actually reigning and ruling, who's actually just and righteous in all his ways, even if you don't really have that figured out. Even if you don't understand, I was having a conversation with Ricardo about this this morning, where I was like, this is all true, and I totally believe this. I trust in a sovereign God who's, who's just, he's, he's providential. He, he just reigns and rules for good all the time. And I know he's capable of doing all things. And so the question I had for Ricardo, or I told Ricardo, is I understand that, I believe it, I just don't always like it. And by that I mean like, I trust in Isaiah 9. I believe Jesus is that. My hard part is wrestling through, why did it take 50 years to overturn Roe versus Wade? Why not just change it right away? And then we get into this conversation. I understand it. It's just a good theological conversation Ricardo and I have. It's it's because God's at work. And and he laughed at me at one point. And he said, "I, I I would like God to do it my way because I think my way is best. That's really what's in my heart in those moments. And I think it's in your heart as well when you're wrestling with his providence. But what's the problem with that? I'm not God. It's arrogant of me to think, Lord, if I was you, I would do it that way. As opposed to, Lord, thanks for doing it your way. Because he's perfect in all of his ways. Those 50 years, he was He was doing whatever it is he wanted to do and accomplishing his good purposes in everybody's life. It might be a little bit of a mystery, but I reconcile that mystery with who God is. And we go to Isaiah 9, and it reveals who God is. It reveals who Jesus is. He's perfectly governing. It's all perfect. He's perfectly just, and he's perfectly righteous. You may not like it. I may not like it. And I think in part is because I don't really like to suffer. I don't like to feel 
the weight of any of that kind of stuff. And I don't see the big picture, and you don't either. But he does. And he's a good God reigning and ruling over all things. So we put our hope in him. Now we're moving to point two. Point two, we learned this. Beware of the problems of prosperity. And so now Solomon takes us kind of out of the national side, and he brings it down to a more personal side where he's talking now specifically about money and possessions in our own lives. And he's going to reveal problems that he sees. He's going to see with money and how it affects our lives. We're going to take a look at, I think, six problems we all face when we begin to love money too much. First, he tells us that if you love money, you'll never be satisfied with it. These are, these are true. And we, and we get tricked into not believing this. I promise you. We all get tricked into thinking, nope, that, that might be, that's true for the person sitting next to me, but it's not true for me. I know I'll be satisfied if I just win the lotto. Wouldn't we all be satisfied if we had that $300 million show up in our bank account tomorrow? But Solomon says, no, you won't. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money. It doesn't matter if you have very little money. If you love money and you think you will be satisfied with it, you won't be. It it might satisfy for just a moment, but, but in the end, it's vanity. It's meaningless. How many of you guys like McDonald's? Not many. How many of you have ever eaten a number one, a Big Mac? Okay, it's kind of like, I think about it like this. Think about it like you, you get hungry, okay? And sometimes at my house, traveling home late, and McDonald's is right there on the corner of Wade Green and Hickory Grove, okay? And it just sits there, and it screams, Big Mac combo meal. And when you're coming home, you just think, I'll just drive through, I hit that thing, and that it tastes so good, especially their fries when they're piping hot, and you get a Coke, big old Coke with it. And I know some of you are lying about ever going to McDonald's, but it's good. It's just good. Just trust me, it's good. Anyways, here's what it's like. You get it. This is my experience almost all the time now. I get it, and I eat it, and it tastes so good. Then even before I get home, guess what I'm saying to myself? Why in the world did I just do that? That's the effect. And I think I'll pretty much everybody in the car, except for my, the youngest, the kids, they, they'll just keep eating and eating. But that's kind of what Solomon's saying. That, that's what it's like to love money. And if you're honest with yourself, you pursue it, you pursue it, you get it, you buy things, you build the big house, and you get it. And in the end, it's like, does it really satisfy? No, it just leaves you wanting more. It doesn't satisfy. Number two, the second problem, the more money you have, the more people will try to take it away from you. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Daniel Aiken says, Solomon says, the more money you make, the more leeches will want a piece of what you have. And ultimately, you will watch it go away. Creditors, family, friends, the IRS, and more will consume what you have. Everyone will have a handout to get what you got. Nobody will be around to take your money if you don't have any money. That's what he's saying. I just look and I see people who have money seem to have a lot of people around them. And I like what Daniel Aiken says. They're kind of like leeches. They just show up. 
Because they're in need and they see somebody who has, and so they're just around. They're just waiting for something to fall off the table or, or ask for something. And if you don't believe me, for the sake of time, I'm just going to say, Google bankrupt athletes. Okay, there's one athlete I read about was paying for 60 cell phone bills. You know how many cell phones he was using? One. And this is probably true for most of these athletes. They're, they're just taking care of the people around them. They have a bunch of leeches around them. But these guys who are becoming bankrupt, what they would say is, I, I bought this person a house. I bought that person a car. I was paying insurance for this person. I was doing this. And then on top of that, this is what Solomon is saying, is, is you've got to be careful because there's just going to be people who show up who are going to take it from you. You're not just going to hand it out. There's so many of these guys who have financial advisors that have made bad investments, but I mean by that, taking their money out of their account and putting it in their account. Stealing. That's just what it's like to have a bunch of money, he's saying. A bunch of people have money. The more you have, the more leeches you're going to have around you who are going to want to eat that money. The third problem we see is this. As your wealth increases, your sleep decreases. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Basically, what he's getting at here is, is the more you have, the more problems you're going to experience. The more things you've got to worry about, the more things you've got to keep up and running, the more people you have to be aware of to take care of in your life. And the guy who's just going to work, who's working hard, he's okay with whatever he has. But the more you have, potential for more problems you're going to experience. And again, this is not saying money's bad. It's the love of money. It's wanting it too much. The fourth problem we learn about is this. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Verse 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hands. So the grievous evil that Solomon saw was a wealthy man trying to hoard what he had. And not just hoard it, he's trying to make more and more. And so he goes out and he makes a bad venture or a bad investment and he loses it all, leaving nothing for his son. Proverbs 13 verse 22 says this. Now this is wisdom from Solomon. He says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And so financial planning for the future is wise. It's just wise. It seems to be wisdom for us to think about what life looks like beyond our life, leaving an inheritance to our kids. That's wisdom. Now, how much? You've got to decide that before the Lord. But, but that's wisdom here. But what, what he's saying and what he sees is this guy who's got a ton of money who goes out and he invests it and he loses it all and he has nothing to give. Anybody ever lose money before? Anybody ever lose significant money before? It hurts. The more you have, the more you have to lose. It takes wisdom to handle the money that God has given to us. The fifth problem Solomon tells us about is that it doesn't matter how much you make or possess in this life because when you die, guess what? You get to keep none of it. Just true. Listen to what he says. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil, 
that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So he's been trying to teach us this now for five chapters. Not every single week, but as he gets into money and he gets into just helping us have this eternal perspective as we're living out our life here on this earth. He's just saying, you're going to go out and you can make as much money as you want. And you can have the biggest bank account and you can have the best cars and the biggest house and, and you can live the best life. But guess what happens? In the end, guess how much you get to keep? None of it. None of it. None of us get to take anything with us. Just as we came into the world naked, we leave naked is what he's saying. Meaning there's nothing in your pockets. You brought nothing in and you take nothing out. Just a reality for all of us. Just this eternal perspective. Death is the great equalizer. The sixth problem that Solomon tells us about is that all the money in the world cannot buy us happiness. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Again, this is a picture that he has for us where he's just, he's looking at this guy who loves money. He's, he's, he's got it all and he's, he's, he's able to buy whatever it is he wants. And just think of the thing you want to buy right now. He has it. This guy has it. But the way in which he describes him, listen, he eats in darkness. He's alone with much vexation and sickness and anger. Do do you want to be that person? Does that sound like somebody that, that God's created us to be? Does that sound like a happy life? And that's where Solomon's trying to help us. In these problems that he sees, he's, he's issuing these warnings. Pay attention to your heart. Do you really want money that much? Do you love it that much that, that you want to live in darkness with much vexation, frustration, anger, alone, without joy? He's basically saying it's not ever going to satisfy. It's not going to bring you the joy you think it's going to bring you. Well, in our third and final point, we learn how to enjoy all that God's given us. Because I want to enjoy it, right? Right? I mean, we have stuff. God gives us stuff. We don't live under the sun. We live as men and women who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so we want to live in the fear of God. Recognize Him in all things. And so if He's going to give us this stuff, how do we actually enjoy this stuff? Well, point three, learn to enjoy all that God has given to you. He says, behold, verse 18, What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So how do we enjoy this stuff? I think what Solomon is trying to teach us here is without God, you won't. This this whole point, it all sort of this book, it ends in chapter 12 with him saying, the end of the matter is this, fear God and obey him. So when we live life apart from God, not recognizing God, it's not a fun life. 
It's not a satisfying life. It's not an enjoyable life. But what he's saying is, is how we live life and find great joy in life is that we recognize that there is a God who's reigning and ruling over all things, who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to save us, redeem us, and bring us into a right relationship with him where we get to recognize that everything we have is a gift from him. Everything. Every penny you make is a gift that God has given to you. Your house is a gift that God has given to you. Your car or cars are gifts that God has given to you. Everything, every piece of clothing you have, every possession, all of your wealth is a gift from God. And so that's why he says, I've learned the secret. Enjoy it. Now, you don't enjoy it if you think it's yours and, and all of a sudden you're the one who's responsible for it, that you brought this into your life, because that's not what he's saying. He's saying God is the giver of all things. Therefore, enjoy all things as a gift from God. Again, recognizing it's not about you. It's about God. He gives you these things. He puts them into your possessions. And so as I've been thinking about this and wrestling with this, because I really want to enjoy this stuff. I really want us as a church to find great joy in whatever it is God has given to us. And so the way we do it is we recognize that it's all from Him. And I think one practical application of this, and this is how I want us to end in recognizing that this is all from God, is by giving thanks to Him for it. Whatever it may be. If it's a lot, then we thank Him for a lot. If it's a little, then we thank Him for a little. Because whatever your bank account looks like today, that's exactly what God wants your bank account to look like today. Whatever your current needs are today, those are exactly the needs that God wants you to have today. Because he's at work in all things for our good all the time. He doesn't take a day off. And that's a hard truth to swallow sometimes, but it's true. He gives us exactly what we need. And he calls for us to enjoy it. And we enjoy it when we recognize it comes from him. A good, gracious, heavenly father who knows exactly what we need all the time may not be what we want. That's, that's my biggest struggle with his providence because I want more. But a lot of time what that reveals is I, I love something more than I love God. And so let us just close out our time. Let's take five minutes. Let's break up into small groups. And let's just spend time. Let's just thank God. And all we're going to do is we're not going to ask God for anything. We're just going to thank him for specific things that he's given you in your life today. Okay? And then I'll come back up and close us. So go ahead. You can move the chairs around. Just small groups, people you feel comfortable with praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being God, perfect in all your ways, holy 
loving, kind, gracious. Thank you for being at work in everything, Lord, as you accomplish your good purposes and your word teaches us it's for the good of those that love you. And Lord, we love you and we recognize that you are good. Thank you for the opportunity to meet. We thank you for all that you have given to us, all that you have promised to give us. Lord, in the hope that we have in heaven, Lord, I ask that as we leave here today, you'd pour out your spirit upon us, that you would bless us as your people. You'd give us wisdom to be stewards of everything that you've given to us, that we wouldn't be lovers of money, but we would love you. We would seek to worship you. And Lord, use all the stuff that you've given us, including money that you've placed into our possession, Lord, that we would use it for your kingdom, to accomplish your good purposes, for your glory. And so, Lord, would you bless us today? Continue to give us rest. Continue to increase our faith. Continue to surprise and delight us by your mercy and grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here today. May the Lord pour out his spirit upon you. May you experience his peace, mercy, and grace in abundance. Have a wonderful Sunday.